Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we have the top of the food chain for lawyers. Our guest has 1 million followers on Twitter, and I'm going to read his Twitter bio as an introduction. He's a patriotic American and proud immigrant, a Bruce Springsteen fan. He's been banned by Putin, fired by Trump, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, host of Stay Tuned with Preet, and author of the book Doing Justice. Welcome, Preet Bharara. Thanks, for, thanks very much. I, we, don't have, we don't need to do an interview now. I think that's <laughs> the Twitter bio seems to say it all, no? You packed it all in, in, a, in 280 characters. Um, I did. I want to thank you for your service as U.S. Attorney and certainly for your devotion to the legal profession and your support to our New York State Bar Association. Before we get to your book, Doing Justice, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast. Stay tuned. Um, sure. Your common sense approach to complicated legal issues is widely respected and well-received. Um, is it possible that you're doing as much for the cause of justice through your podcast as you were as U.S. Attorney? Uh, you know, I, I don't, that's very flattering and very nice to hear. I don't know if that is so. Every once in a while, someone in the comments will will say something like that, and it's very gratifying. Um, look, you know, I had the opportunity, uh, as you might expect, to do the standard thing that people do when they're the former U.S. attorney, go and make a certain amount of uh, wealth and lucre from going to a law firm. Uh, I, I thought I had an opportunity to do something a little bit different at least for the time being, both to write a book uh, that's done very well and to do this podcast, which I didn't have such high expectations for. And then pretty quickly, it became one of the most popular and downloaded podcasts and news and politics in the country. So I guess to the extent uh, thoughtful citizens want to understand what's going on in the world by listening to folks like you and me and watching cable news and hearing not just from pundits and journalists, no offense to them, but hearing from people who used to practice the craft and still do practice the craft, how does it really work when you charge someone with a crime? How does it really work when you walk away from charging someone with a crime? What are the standards of proof? What's a grand jury? Uh, what does it mean when FBI agents show up at 6 a.m. to arrest uh, Paul Manafort? Is that the way it's supposed to be done? And to the extent you know, people are getting an education, and I think we're lacking in civic education in the country, it's both gratifying and providing some service, I hope. Um, you know, but I do miss subpoena power. Well, uh, I think uh, we can understand that. We appreciate how you're focusing your efforts. Uh, I agree with you that certainly a civics education is something that's very important. And you do this every week uh, on your podcast, and you do it in your book, Doing Justice. You've broken your book into four parts of the lawyer's trial process, uh, inquiry, accusation, judgment, and podcasting. Um <laughs> Right. I, that was a joke. The last one I, is punishment. Punishment. Uh, and and it's and really and podcasting. Podcasting is not a punishment. It's a great joy, <laughs> as I know you as I know you will agree. I do agree. And and your your podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, certainly is uh, a great joy and provides uh I think very deep information, a deep dive on these issues in a very uh palatable way. People can understand it and uh come away with something. That's what we're hoping here too uh, at Miranda Warnings, but your book is really a primer, not just for criminal trials, but 
I'm going to say all kinds of uh, trials, lawyering, and and leadership. Um, you talk about what the rule of law and justice means to you uh, in the preface of your book, and you quote from a, a Clarence Darrow summation, freedom comes from human beings rather than laws and institutions. Why is that such an important point to you? Um, thanks for, for uh, pointing to that quote, which is really an animating principle, I think, of how I thought about the job of U.S. Attorney, how I thought about training young prosecutors and staff members in the office. And I think something that is often missing in, in education, not just of lawyers, but also of leaders generally. And that is, uh, and it echoes a sentiment by uh, learned hand that we sometimes, he said, I fear we place too much trust in constitutions and in courts. Uh, you know, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. And when it dies there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. It's the same idea that I think the best and most thoughtful lawyers the country has ever seen come back to, although we don't so much in the practice talk about it. And that is, you can write a perfect law, you can write a perfect statute. Uh, that's giving a lot of, you know, maybe over over uh, extended credit to Congress than they deserve, because many statutes are not that way. There are still oceans of discretion, whether you're an editor of a paper or the president of a university or a U.S. attorney, or for that matter, an assistant U.S. attorney. And you cannot prescribe the answer uh, to, to all scenarios that you encounter uh, and all situations that you have to deal with, especially in the, in the difficult and meddlesome human world of criminal prosecution, as well as other worlds. And so since you can't teach everything from a book, uh, and the hardest questions that I ever had to face, both as a line prosecutor and as a U.S. attorney, were not things where I could find the answer in a book. Then you realize that, that an important aspect of making sure that justice is done is making sure that the people who are responsible have integrity, have character, know how to put their bias to one side, uh, think about only doing the right thing, are not in it for personal gain, are not in it for personal self-aggrandizement. And that needs to be said every day, all the time. Uh, and that, I think, is, is something that's, that's lacking, that you can have the best laws in the world, but if the people who are responsible for enforcing it or exercising discretion with respect to decisions that are left up to them uh, in connection with those laws, if you don't have those the right people, massive injustice and miscarriages of justice can happen. And, you know, you uh, you make reference to that in a in a quote about food and you talk about food a lot in your book. I, I think <laughs> this is one of those books. There's that, no there's no recipes. There's no recipes. But the, yeah, there's some food. Talk. Yeah, I, this this would be the kind of book where you could have a recipe at the beginning of each chapter uh, that was relevant. But you say and I think this is this is instructive of the point you're making that you could have the perfect recipe, but that doesn't guarantee a great meal. Uh, and I think you're applying that to our laws and our constitution as well. Yeah, I mean the other metaphor I use is you know it, you know a, a law is just an instrument; it's a tool. It's a really effective tool, but it requires the involvement of human hands. And without that involvement uh, of deft of deft playmanship of deft playing, uh, you know the law is as uninspiring as a violin kept in its case. Uh, you know, all of these things, because they're not done by, you know, it's not the manufacturing of an automobile, right? The, the law and justice are not done by algorithm and uh, and rote recipe. Uh, I, I have another, you know, the other analogy that, that I refer to, and I a little bit suggest that it's overstated, uh, it, that people use in a facile way, is connect the dots. Oh, well, they should just connect the dots, and then you can figure out who did the crime. 
uh, you know, connect the dots is something that we teach children who are not very good at drawing. <laughs> and, and everybody understands that if you drag a crayon or a pencil from the dot, you know, marked one to the one marked two to the one marked three, at the end of that process, you'll have some jagged picture uh, of a cow or a barn or a face or a car or something. But investigations in the real world don't happen that way. And you can't learn how to do them in a cookie cutter fashion. There are principles and guidelines, of course, but you know you have to apply your your brain and your heart and your discretion on an individual basis to all of those tough things that you do in life, and it's, it's incredibly important to remember that. And and I want to I want to stay on the investigation, uh, the inquiry part of your book that was uh, fascinating. One of the one of the most satisfying things about the book is that you. You hardly mentioned Trump at all, which uh, <laughs> is quite a relief. In fact, I, I'm going to note that you mentioned Miranda more than you mentioned Trump. So I want to thank you for the <laughs> I do. for the that shout was homage out. homage to you, my friend. Yes, thank you. Um, well, look, I think that there are other places where you could talk about Trump on cable news. I you know I do it on Twitter, uh, but that's a different forum of 280 characters, and you can get caught up in this nonsensical cycle of news every day and the barbs go flying and, and the lies happen and the undermining of the rule of law and, and judges get criticized. And sometimes the president says, you know, we should get rid of the judges. Uh, and, you know, he claims exoneration when exactly the opposite is true. And you can get all caught up in that. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's a little bit of a merry-go-round. Uh, on the opposite end of the extreme of places where you can put your thoughts forward from Twitter is, you know, a substantial book of 104,000 words as opposed to 280 characters. And I thought there, I didn't want to get sucked down into the rabbit hole of attacking Trump and talking about his phraseology. I mean, there's a little bit of, of that there. You know, one, one reviewer said of the book, uh, it, in a way, it's a metaphorical survivor's guide to the Trump era, even though it doesn't talk about Trump, because it does talk about, I think, first principles and values that seem to be under attack, like what is truth, what is justice, what is fairness, what is expertise? What is evidence? Uh, and all of those things are under attack indirectly and sometimes directly when you have people around the president saying things with a straight face like there are alternative facts or what Rudy Giuliani said not too long ago. Truth isn't truth. Well, you know, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as facts. And I thought I would talk about those things from the perspective of, you know, some really interesting cases and stories from my office. And, and even though the book is mostly about things that predate Trump. It's also about the present day. And I, I say, I think I say, you know, some, sometimes the best way to address current events is to go back to first principles. And so that's what I try to do there. Yeah, well, it, it's difficult to talk about, you know, principles of rule of law and justice, uh, even in a in a impartial way. And not have it look as a poor reflection uh, on Trump. Uh, there's, there's just no way to to do that. There's one thing that I thought was interesting. You know, attorneys and the law sometimes get criticized, uh, but you talk about the public discourse, and you say in these days when our our public discourse has deteriorate, deteriorated, uh, you note in your book that perhaps we can learn some lessons about how we conduct ourselves at trial, respect for our yes. adversary that we disagree with, facts must be proven. Um, you must keep an open mind. Um, it seems like this is too high a standard for 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 our our public discourse. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. And and this this to particularly to to an audience of lawyers, hopefully, is music to their ears. Uh, you know, I often know that lawyers get maligned and made fun of, and there are lawyer jokes that are still popular, and a lot of it we deserve. <clears throat> but you know, there's, there's there's a couple of ways in which lawyers 
uh, provide a model, and in particular litigators and those who go to trial. You know, one of the problems we have in society, the two problems we have in society at the moment, in public discourse, in the court of public, uh, in the public square, one is that the dialogue uh, is either non-existent, people retreat to their own bubbles and silos and they watch uh, the television shows that agree with them and they follow people on social media who only agree with them and reinforce their own points of view. They, they never, ever engage in the other side. Uh, and then uh, the second problem is when they do, uh, on occasion, it's with invective and character assassination and insult. And even the people, and I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but even the people who you know, are, are sometimes thoughtful critics of the president and what he's doing to democracy and how he's leading the country, uh, they will often resort to making fun of his hair or his, uh, his, or his, his tan or his weight. And, and those are not, I think, appropriate ways to argue about things, particularly if you care about the subject matter. And now, so compare that, as I did in the book, with how you're required to make your arguments in court. You know, if you're a defense lawyer or a prosecutor, you can't sit in your corner and shut your ears when the other side is up making arguments. You have to engage. Just imagine if, imagine if you didn't. And the jury is told to, to keep an open mind throughout the entire process. And among the bases on which you can get kicked off the jury is if you just shut your ears and you say, I'm not going to deliberate. A, a failure to deliberate, which is what we have a lot in society, is a basis for saying you have no business in a, in a jury being a part of the decision-making process. That's an important lesson to folks. And then, the, you know, the, the second problem is addressed in court also by the judge who, if he's or she is doing their job correctly, will not let you argue uh, based on uh, racial animus or on fear mongering or on prejudice or on slogans that have no bearing on the on the, on the proof and the evidence of trial and, and on the relevance of what's important to trial. That's all good. If <laughs> we could learn something in public discourse from how things are done with rules and decorum and integrity in a courtroom. Right. And, you know, you mentioned juries and there's a part in your book about juries and trials that I, I, I want to ask you a question about. You talk about, uh, you know, the jury system recognizes you're entitled to your view, but only if you have taken the time to engage with others about it. If you announce your decision before any deliberation, if you close your eyes and ears to all debate, if you physically remove yourself from the discussion, then you are not worthy of being a decision maker in the case. And that's that's a quote from your from your book. Uh, why is that so important uh, to a decision maker? Because the best decisions come from engagement on all sides. And persuasion is a skill and an art and a practice that seems not to be much in, in popular demand these days. And so if you're going to get the, the benefit of a good result, whether it's you know, on climate change or it's on tax policy or it's on immigration practices, or it's on the result uh, of guilt or not guilty at trial, that can only be done if, if people of good faith and who are thoughtful and who are engaged and listening and try to meet the other people's responses as opposed to shutting their ears off <clears throat> um, and, and just reciting their own you know, political slogans and, 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 and you know, hoping for some result-oriented outcome that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem for decision-making in court. It's a problem for decision-making in Congress. And it's a problem for opinion-making, I think, in our politics. I want to get your thoughts on a, a recent Supreme Court of the United States decision that came down 
recently to vacate the stay of an execution. Uh, it involved the state of Alabama versus Christopher Lee Price. I don't want to get too much into the facts of the case necessarily, but what's startling to me is that there was an application for stay that came to the court at 9 p.m. in the evening. Justice Breyer, a Supreme Court Justice of the United States, requested that no action be taken until uh, they could discuss the case in conference in the morning. And in the middle of the night, uh, without giving all members of the court the opportunity for discussion, they uh, vacated the stay. Um, what do you think of that? So I want to be careful not to uh, do what I criticize people doing on television all the time, to pop off uh, and opine on something that I have not looked at very closely. From what I saw of it, I saw it reported and how you describe it. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound like a great way to build faith among the various members of the court or public faith on the part of those of us in the country who care about the court and care about process. Um, maybe maybe there's, a, there's, a, there's an arguable basis for having done it that way. I, I don't see what it is, not having learned more. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it's great. I mean, look, I think it's very important, as I say in the book repeatedly, not only for justice to be done, but for justice to be seen to be done. And sometimes there are ways of doing something that caused people to wonder uh, if the right decision was made or if the right process was followed. And this could be one of those examples. I, I just I just don't know because I haven't studied all the documents. Well, um, I, I appreciate that. And I pr obviously appreciate your your tempered discretion. Um, and I, I want to talk about your your tempered discretion, actually. I want to talk about <laughs> I want to talk. That's usually what everybody wants to talk. Yeah, about. Very, I mean, it's a very sexy subject. What, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's uh, that's what the, the Miranda Warnings uh, podcast is all about. Sexy topics. Um, you, you know, you you worked on some corruption cases uh, in New York. They're very important, uh, certainly to New Yorkers, uh, corruption cases against uh, then Assembly Speaker Silver, Senate Majority Leader Scalos. Um, are there are, are there different considerations for a prosecutor bringing a corruption case against a powerful politician than in other cases, or do you approach it the same way you would approach any case? So that, that's a that's a very good question, and my answer is uh, every case is the same in the sense that there's no different standard that you apply. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's it. And, and we take seriously the proposition that no one's above the law and no one gets special treatment. And we're you know, fearless and aggressive, whether you're powerful or not. So you don't treat it differently from the perspective of what you have to prove or what quantum of proof you think you need to have. What I will say is that when cases are uh, very serious, investigations are very serious with respect to, to publicly elected officials, th there is a sensitivity that I think is warranted that's even greater. Uh, and not maybe for the reasons that people might think that, you know, it's a it's a high stakes case where everyone is looking and so you wanna make sure you don't screw up. Obviously that's true, but you also wanna be very careful because unlike anyone else that comes within the crosshairs of the prosecutor's office, publicly elected officials are different. And they're different in the sense that a, a prosecutor's actions, both in investigation and maybe just even merely accusation uh, well short of conviction at trial, will have can have an effect, can have a direct effect on the people's choice of who they put into position uh, in, in power. And so prosecutors, I think, need to be very careful about engaging in actions that they may need to engage in because no one's above the law. You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card or a, a no-investigation 
card just because you're elected to office. But, but those people are actually folks who the democratic process put into power. And you don't want to be substituting the prosecutor's judgment for what the public decided. So, so I think you want to be very careful about how you go about doing your investigation to the extent possible. Um, have it be below the radar and not known, although that is sometimes impossible to prevent. Um, and then the other part of it that, that I think is more traditional, whenever you have any kind of high profile case, is 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 maybe <laughs> there are more levels of supervision <clears throat> as, a, as a standard matter that uh, that that occur. You know, there's a lot of cases in the office uh, that are garden variety that, you know, we trust our excellent, excellent assistant U.S. attorneys and their direct supervisors to handle and manage. And I don't look at the indictment and I don't uh, you know, look at the draft of the opening statement and the summation and the cross-examination uh, and maybe look at the underlying 302s or all sorts of other material because you can't, you can't operate a large institution that way. But then there are cases that come along, whether it's you know, Rod Roger Rutnam or it's Dean Skelos or Sheldon Silver, where lots of really smart people are brought into the process to make sure that every T is crossed and every I is dotted because it's a significant case. But the, the standard is not different and the approach is not different, uh, although there may be more you know, sort of chefs in the kitchen when you have a case of that magnitude. Well, it, just, sticking with, the, with those cases, uh, I want to... Um, I want to take you to task on something. You, it, it, I rewatched your uh, the speech that you gave at uh, the New York Law School the day after the um, uh, charges were announced against Speaker Silver, and I'm just going to defend uh, my hometown here, Albany. You said. <laughs> the culture of corruption in Albany. Albany's kind of a very nice place. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's I, not I, any I more corrupt. Albany, I know. I went to Albany uh, and to give a, a talk once, and the mayor of Albany was speaking just before me, and she said something to me about why, why are you always ragging on Albany? And I think in my talk, I then I said, look, I, it's a, it's a, a shorthand that I use that a lot of people use for capitals, which refer to the state legislature and not the very lovely town of Albany in the same way that people talk about Washington, D.C. Maybe it's unfortunate. Maybe people should be careful of that. I, ha I mean, no disrespect to the great town city of Albany. It is wonderful with wonderful people. Uh, I think sometimes the legislature that meets there occasionally leaves something to be desired. Well, let the record. How's, how's that? That's great. Let the record there? reflect his praise for, for, the, for Albany and the people uh, of Albany. So thank you for that. Um, do you think now with the benefit of time, you know, you're out of the arena, um, you've had time to think about things bigger picture wise, do you think you would be a different, uh, prosecutor or a different U S attorney, uh, based upon this time you've had away? I think, I think fun, I think I'd be fundamentally the same because I think my orientation, I, I think I was trained well. My orientation was, was good. Um, I had done a lot of reflecting in, in writing the book and a lot of the ideas and thoughts, you know, they didn't, they're not new. They've been in my mind. That's what propelled the writing of the book. But when you do have the, the benefit of time and you're trying to be thoughtful in putting down your thoughts on paper, yeah, then you do think about things, I think a little bit more deeply. Um, and I, you know, and I, and I think there are some cases that in the future, I would think maybe we need to have a better policy on how we deal with some drug cases. And maybe we need to have a better uh, focus 
on conditions of confinement. I mean, so, some of the things that and the trends that I was um, hopefully promoting at the end of my tenure in the last two, three, four years of my tenure as U.S. attorney, I would have continued. I mean, the, the focus on Rikers Island, which is a subject of an entire chapter and kind of a brutal chapter towards the end of the book, um, th that became a really important uh, issue for me, uh, how we treat people in prison uh, and how prosecutors maybe don't pay enough attention to that, how we think about from a policy perspective, uh, being uh, proponents of making sure that people re-enter society in a way that they're, they're fully embraced and they have the ability to make a living uh, and to, and to reintegrate into society. Those were really, I mean, I talked about not just the cases we brought against Rikers Island, but a program I participated in in Rikers Island that was intended to make reentry for, for people better. So I think I, I became, uh, you know, more cognizant of and thoughtful about certain kinds of issues towards the end. I think that there, there are ways that we dealt with mandatory minimum sentencing, um, you know, for many, many, many years uh, in the country that were not great. Uh, and that the trial penalty uh, in some cases was too severe. And we started to think about ways that we would take the extraordinary step of sometimes dismissing counts even after conviction so that the penalty more uh, justly and fairly fit the crime. And the last thing I would do differently, which I said once at the end of a podcast, uh, and this is not, you know, a legal issue and it, it doesn't bear on, you know, how people would conduct themselves and how cases would be brought. But for me, in writing the book, what was amazing was all these cases I talk about, I knew the basics of them. I mean, I ever saw them. Uh, and I, I was briefed in real time on the significant cases, and I knew the legal decisions that were being made, and I knew the legal considerations. But sometimes I didn't know the little details. You know, I didn't know um, precisely what the mother of the kidnapped baby said in court uh, and how moving it was. I didn't know uh, some of the details of how, uh, you know, an investigator in the office got someone to flip. You know, what, what was the way he appealed to that person's conscience? I didn't know uh, what the, the look on the face was of the, of the inmate, Eric Glisson, when one of the investigators in our office went and told him, I believe you're innocent and I'm going to get you out of prison. And those kinds of things, those little moments that are important in telling a story, I didn't learn about until I wrote the book. And I think if I had to do it over again, even if it meant staying in the office a little longer, uh, that I would ask people a lot more about about those little moments they had because that's what kind of makes life interesting. Yes, and that's what makes your your book uh, doing justice interesting. There's uh, a, a lot of little moments that you go into great detail that you tie into uh, uh, the bigger picture, uh, which I think makes the the book so very compelling. And uh, we thank you, uh, Preet, for your uh, for your work, uh, for being with us here on Miranda Warnings. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings uh, called Music Book or Movie, and you can share a music book or movie performance that means something to you. I know we talk about very heavy subjects, but this can be lighthearted or not. Sometimes it's not. Well, I, <clears throat> I've been thinking in the few minutes since you told me before we started recording that you would you would be asking this question, uh, but it was hard to multitask uh, and answer your thoughtful questions and also think about it. So look, I'll say this is, will come as no surprise to anyone who has seen my Twitter bio or follows me that I am a huge and, and longtime Bruce Springsteen fan and uh, had the had the occasion on a number of occasions uh, 
the opportunity to meet him. He's been very nice to me. I once got a shout out at a Bruce Springsteen concert, which is one of the, the best moments uh, ever. Uh, but I, I watched three times his performance on Broadway. And having gone to his concerts for many years and been to dozens of them with members of my family and with friends, there's something deeply special about the Broadway performance. And I think I brought my son, my middle son, who's, who plays jazz guitar and is himself uh, a second generation Barrara lover of Springsteen. He was blown away by it. And, and the idea of going to a show where Springsteen not only sings, but talks about his family, talks about his relationship with his father, his relationship with his mother, his ambitions, his dreams, <clears throat> some of his setbacks, um, and being able to share that with my own son, who from all appearances doesn't seem to be pretending to like Bruce, like Bruce Springsteen, but really does. And to share music in a moment with your child that way is a really special thing. So if people missed it, you can watch it, I believe, on Netflix. Uh, and I would recommend it to everyone. Well, thank you, uh, Preet, for for sharing that. I'm, I'm going to point out another show. Uh, there's a show called Billions, where oh, yeah. uh, supposedly uh, you're the basis for the Paul Giamatti's Chuck Rhodes Jr. character. Uh, so they can watch that and, and find out more about uh, Preet uh, Pre Bharara. Uh, yeah, well, some of that, I just say, because I got to run. <laughs> It's a very highly fictionalized, both with respect to how the U.S. attorney in reality is professionally and even more importantly, how he is in his personal life. Thank you very much, Preet Bharara. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.